we are in Ephesians again this week. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you'll know that we've been going through Ephesians. It's been a very quick ride. We've not been able to stop at any specific, specific portion and really take a long, long time to look at it. And uh, we started by trying to unpack Ephesians chapter 4. And in order to get there, we had to unpack 1 through 3 first. And then we went from there. We looked at chapter 4 last week. We looked at chapter 5 up until chapter 6. And now we're going to finish the book of Ephesians. Uh, and this may be, as I said last week, one of the quickest series of Ephesians. Uh, series isn't a word, I understand. Uh, the quickest series uh, through Ephesians that maybe you've ever been a part of. And yet we take an overall look at the book. And as we've taken an overall look at the book, just as review for those of you who haven't been with us, or even those who have, uh, as we've looked at Ephesians, this is what we've seen so far. Uh, In Ephesians, this is the theme. Christ has saved us, we see that in uh, chapters 1 through 3, to follow him, we looked at that last week, to follow or imitate him in a new life of unity, maturity, and growth through the power and control of of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. As we've looked through Ephesians, we've seen that Christ has saved us to follow him in a new life of unity, maturity, and growth through the power and control of the Holy Spirit. And as we've looked at, this is, I know, a really short statement to summarize five chapters plus of Ephesians, but so far this is really what we have had an opportunity to look at. That if we are We need to be controlled by the Holy Spirit because Christ has saved us to follow him in a new life of unity with one another, maturity in him and constant growth to him and with one another. And so we've been looking at that and now we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we started last week, we looked at children obeying their parents and servants obeying their masters and vice versa. We looked at that last week. We're going to pick up in verse 10 uh, this morning. As we look at one of the most classic passages of scripture uh, that many people have had heard many sermons, many people have had many Bible studies, a lot of people have made a big deal about this section and there's a good reason for that and we're going to talk about what traditionally would be called the armor of God passage and that's where we're going to be this morning as we look at Ephesians chapter 6. And when we're there, we're going to see this. Today the theme and remembering all of what we've already seen in Ephesians is that living this new life that Christ has saved us for, living this new life is a struggle. It is a battle. It's a struggle. It's a hard thing. If for the last several weeks as we've been going through Ephesians, you might find yourself saying, you know what, I believe all this. I think it's true. And I know I need to walk in unity. And I know I need to work towards maturity. And I know I need to be growing. And I need to be putting away all the old things that, uh, that the world has to offer. Put away my sinful life and instead follow him in this new life. I know I need to do that. But I just don't know how because it's too hard. If that's been you, then you're in the place where you need to be. Because living this new life is not easy. It is hard. It is a struggle. And we will see that to be true even here in Ephesians 6 starting in verse 10. When we get there, we're going to see that there indeed is a battle raging. There is a struggle going on. That living this new life that has been talked about for the first five chapters of Ephesians is not just something that we can just wake up and do and not have any thought of and just it just happens because it's that easy. Living the Christian life is not an easy thing. 
This is not just, I believe in Jesus, then I'll live however I want. No, it's believing in Jesus to the point we commit our lives to him. It'll change our life completely because he is the one who changes us. And so as we understand that, we understand that the Christian life is a struggle. We think about struggles and how many of you are struggling this morning. You know, some of you, it might be big struggles in your life. Others of you, as it was with my family... It might be a struggle just to get up the hour early that you have to get up because of daylight savings time, right? So, you know, you get, to, you get here 15 minutes late because the whole morning's been a struggle. You laid in bed longer than you should have, and you know what a struggle is, but then there's bigger struggles. Maybe it's a health struggle. Maybe it's a struggle with family, with relationships, and I don't know. But we all understand what it's like to be in a battle, to be in a struggle, to have something hard in our life. And that is true of our Christian life. And, you know, as I was thinking about that, and then we were watching Tyler in the uh, video conference that we had with him just a little earlier, I'm thinking about Missions Month. And this sermon, although not a missions sermon, it's interesting as you look at Ephesians 6, 10 through the end of this, this book, how what Tyler was telling us about, if you were able to be an ABF, or many other missionaries that have shared with us in the past, that they understand in a very real, physical, obvious way that living the Christian life and sharing the gospel and being an ambassador for Christ is a battle, is a struggle. Tyler just shared just some of the guys that he's been ministering with and to and how every day is a constant struggle just to survive, let alone preach the gospel, let alone live a life in which they are lights to the communities around them. And so as we think about our missionaries and we think whether they're in Papua New Guinea or South Africa or Uganda or wherever they might be, that living the Christian life and sharing that life with others, it's a constant battle and we see that. But see, it's easy for us to think, well, that's them, that's out there. But there's a battle that rages right here as well and it might not be as obvious. It might not be something that we see every day or really think about every day and yet it is real. As they would say, I guess the struggle is real. It really is. We have a struggle. We have a battle. Now, as we've been going through Ephesians, you know I've used a lot of sports analogies, and I'm going to continue this morning. Actually, as I looked online to look at, uh, when I listened to Steve's sermon, uh, I saw that uh, whoever does our graphics and our our, uh, recording, and Gary or whoever's up there doing that, they decided to put the little picture that goes with the sermons, you know, something about... Uh, get in the game or join the team. I don't remember exactly what it said. So as this being our last week, I'm going to go back to that a little bit. And you know that playing a sport well is not easy. If you really want to do well at a sport, doesn't matter what it is, it's going to take hard work. It's going to take uh, physical exhaustion. It's going to take training that hurts. It's going to take early mornings sometimes to get up and to train for, uh, for whatever uh, sport you're playing. And winning consistently is a hard thing to do. There are not many teams, as you look even in professional sports, that would continually be a perpetual winner because it's hard to do. You know, some teams have figured it out, but it's a struggle to be a constant winner. For those of you who know a little bit about football, specifically college football, and I don't even know that much, but I do know the name of Bear Bryant. If you know Bear Bryant, he was a legendary coach in college football. And it was interesting as you look at his life, he understood what it meant to be a consistent winner. And why do I know that? Well, his overall lifetime record, and this is crazy to think about, 410 wins, 85 losses, and 17 ties. 410, 85, and 17, that's an incredible record. 
You won't see many records ever better than that in any coaching career. So he understood something about what it meant to win the struggle, to win the game. And if many of you have probably heard this, whether you're a sports fan or not, there was a famous quote that he said, and he basically said, offense sells tickets, but defense wins championships. If you've heard that phrase before, defense wins championships. Well, that was Bear Bryant that said that. And you see that that's the title of our sermon today because what we're going to look at today is what it looks like to win this struggle of living the Christian life. And what do we need to do to win? Well, we need to be on defense. We need to be defending against an enemy. We need to be defending. And as we look at that through the armor of God, I believe it'll give us a new perspective on how it is that we need to live this new life that God has called us to. And we're going to see, in fact, that it's not just a struggle to live, not just a struggle, but we've used this other word, battle. It's not just a struggle to live a life of unity and maturity. It's a battle. It's a war. It's a literal war that we are fighting. That is the tone we find here in Ephesians 6, 10 through 24. In Ephesians 6, 10 through 24, we see this battle raging. We see this struggle that we face and how we can defend against it. And so with that, let's read Ephesians 6, 10 through 24. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and fellow minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with a love incorruptible. All right, this is where we find ourselves now in Ephesians chapter 6. Here at the end of Ephesians, we see the language of war being used as a reference to living the Christian life, as we've already talked about. As we look at this passage, we will see several components of the war that we are in. As we understand, first of all, who our commander is, then also what the battle is, what our armor is, and then finally what the strategy is for this battle, it'll help us as we battle on. It'll help us as we continue to defend in this battle that we are in for our Christian life. And so let's look at these different components. The first one we're going to look at is our commander. 
right? You think about battles, you think about wars, and you need someone to lead the troops into battle. So who is the one that leads the troops into the battle? Who is the commander? Uh, And I think we know the obvious answer to this question because it's the Sunday school answer, but the answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the commander, He is the one that is leading us. And how do we see this here to be true in Ephesians 6? Well, verses 10 and 11, it can't be any clearer. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So before we even understand who our enemy is, we understand who our ally is, who our commander is. And that is Jesus Christ. And the first thing we see is that we fight in his power. That's what we're told here in verse 10 and 11. The struggle we face, this is important, this is going to be the theme throughout the, the morning. The struggle we face to live this Christian life, to live the new life that he has given us, that struggle we face cannot be overcome through our own strength. It cannot happen. The only way we're going to be able to live the Christian life that he has called us to is to rely on his strength, to rely on the strength of Jesus Christ. We can't miss this. If we try to do it in our own, we will lose every single time, but we have already been given victory in Christ, and so we lean on him and we ask him to use his power. We rely on his power, his strength, and we look to him. And I already mentioned this, but the second part of this is we see that his power has already won the war. This is an important truth to remember. His power has already won the war. You see, this battle that we're in, we have an advantage, and we know this, that the battle's already been won, the war has already been won, we are fighting and defending, but Christ has already had victory. And how do we know this? Well, I actually want to go back in Ephesians and remind you some of the things that we've already seen in Ephesians. So if you just turn back a page or two in your Bibles, we're going to look at Ephesians, first of all, chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, all right, Ephesians 1, verses 19 through 23. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ has given authority to the church. Why? Well, we see this in Ephesians chapter 1, what we just read. It is his power and might that he worked in the fact that he rose Jesus from the dead, that Jesus rose again. We see that to be his power. And as a result of that, Jesus is put over everything. He is king. He won the victory. The victory has already been won, and he shares that victory with his church. That's what we see in Ephesians chapter 1. And that is an important truth to remember. But it wasn't just there in Ephesians that we saw this to be true. We also see it in chapter 3. First of all, in verses 14 through 16. In verses 14 through 16 of chapter 3 in Ephesians, this is what we read. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
Here's the deal. Again, we see not only has the victory been won by Jesus, we saw that in Ephesians 1, but he shares that power and strength with us, but he gives us the power and strength because it's only through him. He has won and now gives us the power and strength. As we continue in chapter 3, we see verse 20 also talks about this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. The glory goes to God, the glory goes to Jesus Christ because of the power that he works within us. Not power that we manufacture ourselves, but he won the war, he shares his victory, he gives us strength, he gives us power. That is the idea here as we look at Ephesians 6. As we look at Ephesians 6 verses 10 and 11, we see that we rely on the power and strength of the Lord. Because he has already won the war. I know we're parking on this first point quite a bit, but I want to share one more passage that you can't not... (laughs) That's a double negative. That you have to go to as we talk about the victory we have in Christ. So if you would turn over with me to Romans chapter 8. If you would turn over with me to Romans chapter 8. And many of you probably have even memorized many of these verses. But in Romans chapter 8 we see more about this idea that Christ has already won the war. In Romans chapter 8 we are going to be looking at verses 31 through 39. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, and this is what it says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can't say it any better. What do we just see in Romans chapter 8? If God is for us, who can be against us? God has sent Jesus to die and to rise again so that we will have strength, so that we will have power, so that we will be conquerors. Verse 37 again. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors because it's not us doing the conquering. Christ has already done the conquering and now he brings us in to his army. He brings us into his family. And so we are conquerors. The victory has been won. So why would we rely on our own strength to try to win a victory that his strength has already won? It's actually quite foolish if you think about it, but yet how many of us do it? Now the last point I want to see here is Jesus of our, as our commander is this. And this is a little thing that many of us don't even think about. I didn't until I really started reading and studying. But in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Notice it doesn't say here, put on all of your best armor. 
says, put on the armor of God. Who is the source of our armor? It's not us. It's not our own strength. It's not our good works. It's not by us trying to do the things that these armor pieces represent. It's not about any of that. God is our armor. God is giving us the armor. It is being provided by him. And therefore, he is our commander. We rely on his power. He's already won the victory. And as we rely on that power, we also understand that it is him that allows us to be able to, to defend against our enemy. He allows us to defend by giving us the armor. It is the armor of God. It is not just random armor, but it's armor that God is the source of. And this is important that we understand. We can't fashion and wear our own armor. We can't make and wear our own armor. We need him to fashion our armor. We need him to provide us with our armor. That is a key as we go forward here in the rest of this passage. So Jesus Christ indeed is our commander in this battle we fight. But as we understand this, and that we are fighting in the power of Jesus as our commander, we must also look at the other side. If he is the one that is fighting for us, we must take a look at what the battle actually is. So we've been talking a lot about this struggle or battle that we have. Well, what is it? What, What is it like? What is the point of the battle? Well, as we go on in Ephesians 6, we see more. Verses 11 through 13. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. So what do we know about this battle that we are in? Well, first of all, we see that we face an enemy. We face a very real enemy, and yet it's a spiritual enemy. So the battle is spiritual. That's where we start. The battle is spiritual. And as we know it's a spiritual battle, then we see, first of all, that we face an enemy. So the spiritual battle means that we are facing an enemy. And who is our spiritual enemy? Well, we see it a couple different places in this passage. We see that it's the devil himself, the accuser, the one who will come against the Christian, the one who will come against us to battle against us. He is the enemy of God and therefore is the enemy of us. If we are in God, if we are in Christ, if we are one with him, then his enemies are our enemies. And he has fought the fight. He has died. He has rose again. And yet Satan still doesn't understand that he's lost and he's still trying to gain any ground he can. Satan is the enemy. The devil himself Other powers of darkness and evil. Those who follow along with Satan. It's not just him. There's not just one spiritual being that's going around that takes turns with each of us. No, but it's this whole host of wickedness that comes behind Satan. And we could do a whole study on Satan, the devil, how all that comes about. But we know this. He rebelled against God and took a bunch of angels with him. And they now are the powers of darkness that we read about here in Ephesians chapter 6. Even though they're invisible, they're real. And we're being battled against, we're being warred against by these spiritual enemies of the devil and all his minions, all those who will go with him. And it's important to understand what Satan wants, by the way. What does Satan want? What what is his goal in this battle? Why is he attacking? Well, I want to go back to Ephesians chapter 2. We're staying in Ephesians, and just to show you how the whole book really does come together. Chapter 6 is not just an isolated, like this armor passage is not just an isolated passage that has nothing to do with the rest of the book. Actually, it's very closely 
entwined. In Ephesians chapter 2, I want to read this portion that gives us an insight into who Satan is and what he wants. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, verses 1 through 3, this is what we read. And you were once dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. We see here in Ephesians, what is the work of the devil? The devil wants to keep people dead. He wants to kill and destroy. We know that to be true. And we see here in Ephesians that that following the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan, following that makes is a person who follows him is a son of disobedience, one who is dead in trespasses and sins. One who is dead. Satan's goal is to kill. Satan's goal is to keep what is dead dead and not let it rise again. And that is Satan's goal as we see in Ephesians. Many of you know 1 Peter 5.8. What is the goal of Satan? It's to devour whomever he may. It's to devour. It's to, it's to destroy. That is his goal. He wants to destroy. Really, if I had to sum it up, what, what Satan wants in the life of a believer is to make us lose our focus on Christ. That we would focus on ourselves, that we would focus on our own pride, that we would focus on all the old sins that we have come out of, that we would focus on those things. And if Satan can do that, then he's won the victory because we have stopped focusing on Christ, the one who has our power, the one who has the victory, and instead we're focusing on things we shouldn't. And in the life of the non-believer, it is Satan's constant battle to keep people down. To keep them living in the old ways. To keep them away from the new life that Christ has created for people who will come to him in faith. And so this is our enemy. This is what he wants. He wants to kill. He wants to keep dead. He wants to devour. These are intense words that are used. He's not just around just having fun and playing jokes. He is here to destroy us. Whatever way he can. And so we understand that that's a spiritual battle. We don't see the devil. We don't see the spirits of wickedness and darkness. We don't see that, but we know it's true. We feel it, but it's not something we can see, and yet we know it's true because the Bible says it is. The next thing I want to look at, not only do we face a spiritual enemy, but the battle is now. It says here that we need to stand in the evil day. The evil day. What is the evil day? Well, it's any day we're living. Look around you. And the same could be said from hundreds of years ago. You look around and you see that evil is everywhere. That sin that started in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve made that choice to disobey God, to seek their own fulfillment, to to seek their own pride. When that now that has just blossomed down, blossomed is the wrong word because it makes it sound good. But it's just continued to go downward from there. It's a continual downward spiral. Some people will say this world is getting better, but I think it's clear to see that it's only getting worse. Each day we wake up is the evil day because Satan is working. And until Jesus comes again and permanently, physically defeats Satan, this will be the case. We are living in the evil day, so the battle is now. So in this battle that is happening now against the enemy that is the devil and all of those who will come behind him, we must stand in victory. We must stand in victory. I, I find it very interesting in this passage 
that the word stand is used so often. If you look at this passage so far, in verse 11, we see we need to stand against the schemes of the devil. In verse 12, it tells us what we are, what we are battling. And then it says in verse 13 that you take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. And then, to start the, the part about the armor, says, stand therefore. Four times stand or withstand is used. It's interesting, I, as I went back to, and I thought about this, and you know the, the point I made earlier about Bear Bryant and defense wins championships, it's interesting here that we are not told to charge ahead, but we are told to stand. Because it's almost like this, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but it's, I want you to just picture this. There's a battle that's raging, and an army has defeated a city. They've come in, they've defeated the city, and at that point, the battle has already been won, but there's still people on the outside that are still in rebellion. And they keep trying to come back to the city and take it back. That's kind of where we're at. Jesus has won the victory, and, and we've already won the city. We've already surrounded the city, and yet now attacks still start coming to try to win back the city, but it won't be won back. And so we see this. We must stand in victory. The victory has already been won, so we must stand. Our calling is to defend, not to attack. Now, I, I want you to follow with me here. Our calling is to defend against Satan, not attack Satan. And I say this because some people, I think, have gotten this wrong. And they actually believe that they can go out and somehow be the one who can defeat Satan. To be the one to attack. To be the one to continually be attacking the devil. But I think as you look at this passage, you see that our calling is to stand. Let me explain a little bit more. We've already looked at this. Jesus has won the battle. So we don't have to go on the offense. He already did. When he died and rose again, that was his way of going and defeating the darkness. He was the offender. He was the one on offense. And now we defend what has already been conquered. Remember what we've seen in Romans chapter 8. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing can separate us. We see that in Romans chapter 8 so we can stand in his strength. As I already said, it's as if we have taken the high ground already, but now there are others that are coming trying to take it back. When we think we have to fight for Jesus, and see, here's where I want to, this is the point here. When we think that it is our responsibility to go on the offensive and fight for Jesus, we are forgetting that he has already fought through his death and resurrection. Because here's the truth. We don't fight for him. He fought for us. We've got to remember that. Because if we start thinking that in our own pride we can somehow defeat Satan in our own pride, that we can somehow live this life on our own strength, it's not going to happen. Because he is the one who fought for us. Now as a side note to this, if in case some of you are still struggling with this, because uh, I understand it's a little different maybe than what you've heard, in James 4, 7 and 1 Peter 5, 9, in both of those verses that talk about how we respond to Satan, once again, what does it say? It says, resist the devil. It doesn't say attack the devil, it doesn't say destroy the devil, it says resist. And so it is our calling to stand and resist based on the power of Christ. So as we think about this, it's going to be important that we understand that as we go into the rest of this passage. Because now we're going to move on to the armor of God. It is fascinating to look at all of the pieces of armor in light of the fact that Jesus is fighting for us. Indeed, in a very real sense, 
Jesus is fighting for us. It is his strength we fight in. As we stand, in a very real sense, he is our armor. And so for the armor, I'm going to propose to you today as we look at scripture that Jesus himself is our armor. Jesus himself is our defense. Jesus himself is the one who defends us, our armor that we are given. Now, I know I don't have a terrible amount of time, so I'm going to go through these pieces of the armor fairly quickly. And as we do that, I want to say there's, I missed a few things on your outline. Uh, I actually have some verses that I would like you to write down in your outline next to each of these statements that are made, because this is not just isolated to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to see as we look through the armor that there are many other parallel passages that speak to who Jesus is and who we need to be in light of that. And so that's what we're going to look at as we go through the armor. So as we do that, I will be giving you other references. We won't be going to read all of them because of time, but I would definitely and sincerely just encourage you and exhort you to read these passages because they will go along so well with what we see here in Ephesians chapter 6. So the armor is Jesus himself. So let's start and look at each piece. So we take up the armor of God and it says, first of all, having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. And here's the statement that I think we should be making. We live in integrity. We live in truthfulness. Because Jesus is truth. See, we can't stand in truth and have integrity in our own strength. We can have integrity and truthfulness in our lives because Jesus is the truth. John 14, 6. Many of you know that. You've memorized it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the ultimate truth that we have in this world. And so as he is truth, we can have integrity. And the belt here, and many of you have heard this before, the belt holds everything else together. The truth of Jesus is what holds together all of our defenses. The next thing that we come across after the belt of truth is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness that would cover all the vital organs of the the soldier. We live obediently because Jesus is our righteousness. We can't obey Christ on our own. We can only obey him and live in a way that we are seen as righteous. We can only truly obey him because he is our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that very thing. Christ is our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 So we, we look at the belt of truth who is Jesus, the breastplate of righteousness who is Jesus, and we live in light of that. But now we go on and we see the next thing. And it says, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We share the gospel because Jesus is our peace. The gospel has brought peace. Ephesians 2, 13 through 18, still back to Ephesians. If you remember that passage in Ephesians 2, it says that indeed Jesus brought peace and Jesus is our peace. Not just that he brought brought peace, but that he is peace, that he has brought unity. And that is who Jesus is, and therefore that is the gospel that goes forth. That he brings peace between God and man, and he brings peace between one another. He is peace. It is the gospel of peace that he represents. Now some of you might have heard in other times, and I don't know where you've learned things about the armor, 
Well, the shoes are about moving, so that's an offensive piece of our armor. Uh, that might be somewhat true. Yes, shoes were used for marching, absolutely. But you know what? Roman shoes were made for even more than marching, and I, I learned this this week. Their shoes would actually be strapped on, and on the bottom would be little nails, kind of like what you'd have for, for cleats if you're playing sports. The idea was is they would set their feet down into the ground, and those nails would go in, and they would stand firm. So when that enemy came and they came together, they wouldn't fall back, but they'd be able to plant themselves. That as they did walk, that they would have grip, that they would be able to not fall. If they're going up a hillside or down a hillside, they'd be able to plant themselves and defend against the enemy. So although, yes, they were used for movement, and I would say that is true, uh, even in our Christian life, as we repel the enemy, there are times to move forward, but it's also there to stand firm. Paul uses that phrase here in Ephesians 6, to stand firm, and that's what those shoes were for. So, we stand firm in the gospel. We don't waver from the gospel. That we preach Jesus over and over again, that he lived that perfect life, that he came to earth, that he didn't need to, but he did because he had to, because he needed to save us from our sins. He lived a life as a human. He died on the cross. He rose again. He says, I have defeated sin and death. Please just come to me and believe in me and commit your life to me, and you can be saved. That is the gospel, and that is what we stand on. We can't be moved to the right or to the left, but we stand firm on the gospel of peace. That even though we were an enemy of God, we now can be seen as a friend if we will come to him in faith. That peace was given through the gospel. And we not only believe that and stand on that, but we also preach that. We can see that throughout scripture. So as we move on, and like I said, I know we're going quickly. But it says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Taking the shield of faith. This was one of the main ways to defend yourself. You'd hide behind the shield. Hide behind the shield of faith. We trust God. It's a trust. That fiery dart that's coming at us, it's doubt. It's Satan saying, you don't really have security in Christ. And we take that, that, that faith, that shield, and we trust God because Jesus is the source of our faith. We wouldn't have faith in Christ if he didn't allow us to have faith in him. I want you to write down Hebrews 12, 2. Hebrews 12, 2. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Or the founder and perfecter. Or some of you might have the pioneer and the perfecter. But the idea is that Jesus is the author. He is the one that wrote faith. He is the one that gave us faith. We have faith in him because he empowered us to have that faith. And it is faith in him that will defend us against the enemy. Not just faith in ourselves, obviously. Not faith in ourselves, but faith and trust in him. Satan's darts, as I said, are doubt and fear. But Christ gives hope and love. That shield will give hope and love where the darts are trying to give us doubt and fear. Next, after we see this, the shield of faith. And take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. And a lot of commentators will look at this and say, it's interesting that we're using the helmet. It's talking about protecting the head or the mind. See, here's the thing. The helmet of salvation, we focus on Christ. Why do we focus on Christ and Christ alone? Because He is our salvation. He is our salvation, not our good works. 
Not another God, not another belief system, not following the law. None of these things is what where our salvation is. Our salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. Write down Acts 4.12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is our salvation. And so therefore Jesus is what should be on our mind. We should focus on him. Take every thought captive as we're told in other places in scripture that we think on Christ and his salvation. And then finally, we see the sword of the Spirit. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We rely on God's word because Jesus is the word. You see, we talk about the Bible here, and that is a great interpretation, and that is true. We need to know God's word. We need to know the Bible. We need to know what he's given us. But this means nothing without Jesus, the word himself, being the one who gives us the word that we hold. Because otherwise, this is just a book. But Jesus, who is the true word, Jesus, who is the son of God, gives us his word that we have written down. And so we rely on this because he is the true word. Obviously, John 1 John 1, 1 through 18 talks a lot about Jesus being the word. There's no question there. Now some of you have come to a place where you're probably having a question right now. You're saying, wait a minute, I thought you said we were on the defense. Why would we have a sword if we were only on the defense? The sword sounds like an, an offensive weapon. And in a way it is, right? Okay. But here's what I want to share with you. This sword that the Romans would have that Paul would know about is a short sword. It's not a really long sword like you think about in like the Lord of the Rings. No, it's something short, right? This is something that you would pull out in hand-to-hand combat when it's really close and you're tight and you're fighting. And yes, of course, the sword at times would be used to stab and to kill, obviously. But just as much as it is for that, it's also to defend against the other side's sword. To defend, you know, you've seen sword fights. The sword is just, about, just as much about defending against the other sword as it is actually using it as an offensive weapon. Now, the Bible, obviously, we can use when we are facing this battle where we will remember God's word, we will quote God's word, and it is a way to attack in a real sense. I understand that, but it's also a way to defend. Think about Jesus when he's tempted the three times in the wilderness. You know, what he did with the word was he defended against what Satan was telling him to do by using the word. And so we can defend ourselves, but we can't do it if we don't understand his word because Jesus is the word. So there is an element of offense here, but I think it's also a great element of defense. Now interestingly, by the way, the piece of the Roman war equipment that was mostly used for offense and wasn't used for defense was actually the Roman spear. The Roman would throw the spear. The Roman would jab with the spear to get distance to attack the enemy. And that was their main offensive weapon. They would use the sword when it became close. When it was hand-to-hand combat and it was close quarters, they would pull out that short sword. But other than that, they would use their spears to launch an offensive against the other team, or against the other team, against the other, the other army. Now, what's interesting as I see as we look at this passage is this isn't a, uh, this isn't a piece of the instrument, the piece of uh, what a Roman soldier would have. Paul doesn't mention it. He doesn't say we have this spear that goes out to attack 
And I think it goes back to the idea that we are standing through his power, defending by him defending us as the armor. And I just want to close this section of the armor out by saying this. This isn't a crazy thought that Jesus is our armor. I didn't just come up with it one night because I just had an epiphany. All right, this is not me at all. This is actually God's word. This is Paul that says this, and it's not even a crazy thought for Paul to make. He actually says it even as plain as day. You can't miss it in Romans chapter 13. So if you turn back with me quickly, we need to look at Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, and we're going to simply look at verses 12 through 14 this morning. Romans 13, verses 12 through 14. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or in jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." Here in Romans 13, there's a reference made to armor once again, the armor of light. And who is that armor of light? We are told that we need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. To put him on. And I know that's a weird thought, right? But the idea here is he covers us. He is the one that defends us. We don't do it in our own strength. It's not about us, but he defends us as we let him live through us, through the power of the Holy Spirit that he will allow us to be more and more like him as we try to live the new life that he has given us. The armor isn't primarily about our effort to live in certain ways. See, a lot of times this is preached as, well, you need to live righteously, you need to live truthfully, you need to share the gospel, you need to, uh, you need to have faith, you need to trust your salvation, you need to use the Bible. And those things are all true, by the way. But I don't think that's the main idea here i believe the main point paul is making based on verse 10 is this that the armor isn't primarily about our effort to live in certain ways but it's about relying on jesus the armor is about relying on him and if you haven't given your life to jesus or if you're not living your life for jesus then you are not covering yourself with him and you will not be defended against the enemy so as we stand against a spiritual enemy I know I've got to keep moving on. Through the power of Christ and him as our armor, there's also a strategy for the battle that is prescribed. In light of the fact that trusting in Christ is so important, we see that our strategy is to trust him through prayer. If he is our power in defense, then we need to call on him. That just makes sense. It's common sense. If he is our power, if he is our defense, then we need to call upon him in prayer. So that's the last thing we're going to look at this morning is the strategy As we fight this battle, what is the war plan? What is the strategy? Well, we see here in verses 18 through 20 that indeed it is prayer. Verses 18 through 20. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly. 
as I ought to speak. Some quick things we see here about prayer. Well, first of all, we need to pray in the Holy Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. What does that mean? This is not a mystical thing where you need to get in a certain way about you or have a certain feeling or experience. We pray in the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 26 through 27, we'll talk about this. If you want to write that down as a reference, that when we pray, we need to pray with His guidance, with the Spirit's guidance, so that we pray in God's will. The idea is that when we pray in the Spirit, we are not praying for our own will. We are not praying for ourselves, but we are praying God's will. We are being sensitive to what God is telling us. We are being controlled by the Holy Spirit so much that when we come to God in prayer, we are asking for what He wants, not what we want. So we need to be praying in light of what the Holy Spirit would tell us to pray. Praying in light of God's will. Being so controlled by Him that we will pray that way. The next thing we see about prayer is that we pray for fellow believers. As Paul says here, he says, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication, that's prayer, that's asking, that's for all the saints. And even for me, he goes on. So he says, pray for everyone, pray for one another, because we're in this battle together. And so you need to pray for one another. So you pray in the Spirit, you pray God's will, you pray for other believers. And finally, you pray for the spread of the gospel. You pray for the spread of the gospel. Paul himself asked that they would pray for him so that the words may be given to him in opening his mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He says, For which I am an ambassador in chains that I may deliver it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the greatest evangelist, probably the greatest missionary that's ever lived, the Apostle Paul. He shared the gospel everywhere he went. People came to know Jesus. He planted so many churches all over Asia and all over the area. And we, and we see this. And now he says, what does he need? He needs people to be praying for him. That he will have boldness to share the gospel. If anyone had the right to be able to rely on their own strength to live the Christian life and to be ambassadors of the gospel, it would be Paul. And yet Paul understands that he needs prayer because he goes back and understands from verse 10 that the power and strength that he needs is not found in himself, but is found in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone. And so we pray in that way. This brings me to some questions to ask as we conclude, as we think about all that we've talked about. The first question is very simple. Have you experienced victory in Jesus? Or are you here today and you don't know what I'm talking about because you have not come to Jesus and asked him for salvation. You have not come and repented of your sins and said, Jesus, I need you, I want you, please take my life. I know that you lived that life, that perfect life for me, that you died on the cross for my sins so that I didn't have to be punished for them. And you rose again to show that you had power over sin and death and that you do have victory. And I want to be part of that victory and I want you to be part of my life. If you haven't done that, then make today the day you do that. There's no magic formula that you have to do. You just need to call upon Jesus and ask him to save you. Have faith in him and turn to him. Start battling to live this new life instead of the old life that just wants to take you away. And if you have any more questions, as always, talk to myself. Talk to someone who you know understands who Jesus is. A couple other questions we consider as we close. Where do you find your strength when things are tough? Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, the power of his might. When times are tough, when things are hard, when living this new life as a Christian is hard, 
and you find yourself falling and you find yourself having trouble doing it and you're in a struggle, who are you going to rely on? Who are you going to find your strength in? Are you going to find strength in yourself? Are you going to find strength in someone else? Are you going to find strength in some habit? Or are you going to find strength in Jesus and Jesus alone? Come to him. Call upon him. And then the next question is almost the same, but are you trying to fight the battle on your own? Are you trying to fight this battle of living the new life in Christ on your own? That you think somehow if you can just power up and you can just grit and bear it, then you can, you know, you can just, uh, you can be righteous, you know, you can be truthful, you can be all the things I need to be, I can have unity, I can have love, and I can do it in my own strength. No, you can't. You need Jesus. You need him to fight the battle. You need to defend as he defends you. So how to fight the battle today? A couple thoughts as we close. Remember Christ's victory. This battle has already been won. And it hasn't been fully realized yet, but Jesus has won the victory. We've seen that through scripture. We can show it time and time again. So as you come into this battle, remember Christ's victory. Remember that he has already had the victory and that will give you great hope. And great perseverance because you know he's the one fighting for you. Secondly, rely on Christ's Christ's strength. That goes without saying. If he's won the victory, rely on his strength and not your own. And finally, make sure in times of the battle, which is every day, respond to God in prayer. Pray. Ask for his will. Ask for other people. And pray that the gospel will be spread. It is the gospel that will repel the enemy. With those thoughts and those questions, I would ask you to think those things through as we think about the armor of God here in Ephesians chapter 6. That it's not just isolated pieces of armor, but it is Jesus defending us. And so we've been talking about unity an awful lot. We've been talking about unity time and time again. This church will never have true unity if we don't find it in Christ. And that is the plea from the beginning to the end of Ephesians. Be united in Christ. Don't let the little things of this life distract us from what is truly important. That Jesus fought, Jesus won, and now we can be unified in him. So let us come together for his sake and not our own. And let's close with a final song then. Let's do that.